Welcome to Magra Radio, a broadcast project of Magra Books, streaming worldwide for your listening pleasure. We bring you news that stays news. You'll be listening to The Circular Ruins, an evening with Jorge Luis Borges, recorded in Los Angeles, May 1976, at the University of California. First, you will hear some introductory biographical material about Borges's early life in his birthplace, Buenos Aires. You were born in 1899 in downtown Buenos Aires and moved when you were a small boy, age two, to Palermo, an outlying district, a slum, you've called it, of the time of low houses of one-story, unpaved streets. That's an evocation that you can find in some of your verses. But your recollection, your concrete recollection of Palermo, you've said repeatedly in a very strange sentence, was more of a library of books than of schoolmates, than of people, than of events, than of places that you saw. My question is this. Why is it that your principal recollections as a very young boy were not of people or places, but of books, the feel of books, the illustrations in books, the smell of books, and secondly... What discoveries did you make in that library of your father's English books? First, the chief event in my life has been my father's library. That library happened to be a library of English books. I think of that library as being a major experience. For therein, I've discovered all things. I seem to have never strayed far beyond the library. And among those first experiences... I should speak, I suppose, of Grimm's fairy tales of the Arabian Nights, not the long pornographic books of Burton, Payne, and so on, but the real Arabian Nights, the Arabian Nights of witchcraft, as revealed to the Western world by Antoine de Galland, and as done into English. For indeed, when I speak of books, I think of them as being in English. For example, the Bible is not really the Hebrew Bible. The Bible is the Bishop's Bible. The Arabian Nights is that English rendering of Galan. And so, and also, poetry came to me through the English tongue. Though, of course, I have never attempted English, since I know that I am unable to cope with it. I think that I am unworthy of English. I will never attempt that. I respect the English language it's too much. But I remember my father go, going over the verses, the verses of Keats, of Swinburne, of Shelley, and why not Edward Fitzgerald. And therein I was made to feel that language is not only, let us say, a medium of understanding between men, but language speech may be thought of as being as being a witchcraft, as being a music, a passion, and a spell also. And my mother used to tell me that when I went over those verses I had told my father, I was uttering them in my father's voice. My father, who died way back in 1938, and whose voice somehow still lives in me, when I go 
over lines of swimmer, of Rossetti, of Keats, and so on. And I also discovered one of the major books of all literature. I also discovered, and that was a Spanish discovery, a Hispanic discovery, I discovered the story of Alonso Quijano, who, who dreamt himself into being Don Quixote. And he's now, for us, both of them. He's both the poor Alonso Quijano and also the brave Don Quixote. And he is, I think, friend, friend to all of us. He has been with me all the time. As to the fact that I remember books, that I remember illustrations in books, that I remember the illustrations of the Encyclopedia Britannica, for example, of Mark Twain's Etiquette Finn, Roughing It, and the first days in California also, let me be attributed to the fact that being already very short-sighted, having already begun my, my career as a blind man, I could see things that were near, but not things that were some way off. So I remember the books, I remember the feel of the books, I remember the illustrations, but I hardly remember the faces of my people. And I was aware, of course, of the fact that my house was in a slum. I was aware of the many blank lots. I was aware of the Arroyo Maldonado, rather, well, the dirty river running close to our house, but I was more aware of what was happening inside the library. And what was happening was all literature. That is to say, all things were happening to me before they read, before they happened physically to me. And I think that my father, when he gave me those books, when he allowed me the free run of the library, was right. He did not say to me, read this book. This book is a book by the famous writer Robert Louis Stevenson. He merely allowed me to read Treasure Island by Stevenson. He never spoke about the books unless until I was interested in them. And then, for example, when I had read, let's say, the, the The Vonsunga Saga, as done into English by William Morris and Eric Magnusson, then he would give me a book on the Vikings or a handbook of Norse mythology. So really he was helping me all the time. And he, helped, he has been helping me ever since. I wonder if I have done any reading since then. I seem to be always reading and rereading those books. For example, I remember the fine thrill <coughs> I got, let's say, from Edgar Allan Poe's tales of the grotesque and the arabesque, especially for that nightmare of whiteness, the adventures of Arthur Gordon Pym. Arthur Gordon Pym. Then you get Edgar Allan Poe. Arthur and Edgar are Saxon names. Then you have Alan and Gordon, Scottish names. And then Pym goes for Poe. And in that story, which is now more or less forgotten, Poe had a very strange idea. The idea of giving us a nightmare, not of blackness, as all writers have done, but a nightmare of whiteness. So he wrote that wonderful story, and afterwards, when years and years afterwards, I discovered Herman Melville's Moby Dick, I found in that book also 
white mare, uh, a nightmare of whiteness. So we finally talked of the albino quail, especially in that eerie chapter called the whiteness of the quail. And I also, I also go back to my first memories of Kipling. Kipling has been a lifelong friend. To my first memories of those fine nightmares dreamt at the turn of the 19th century by Wells. I think of the first Man in the Moon, of the era of Dr. Moreau, of the time machine, of the invisible man, of the war of the worlds, of the country of the blind, and so on. Those nightmares were given me, and I have gone in for writing nightmares. But I wonder whether I have evolved anything as strange as those first nightmares. Because nightmares, of course, are among my possessions. I have written many things concerning them. So, I can only repeat that my first experiences were those of the library, of the reading of books. And my father knew quite well. He never told me this book is an essay or idealism. This book is a tale. This book is a fantastic, this book is a collection of fantastic Eastern fantasies. He never said that to me because he knew that all those divisions into genres, those are mere, let us say, inventions of critics. He knew that all books are essentially the same book. And he knew that all experiences, the experiences of reading, the experiences of dreaming, the experiences of living, physical life, are essentially the same experiences. That all experiences are the dream of one mind. And he was helping me all the time. He's helping me still. When I write a sentence, he's by my side helping me, though he died in 1938. That is, of course, of no account. I mean, I think of him as being still there, as being my friend. He's here, I'm quite sure, and he may or may not approve what I'm saying. When Borges was 15, in 1914, the family left Buenos Aires for an indefinite period of sightseeing and traveling and residence in Europe. 1914 was, of course, the eve of World War I. No one knew that, not the Borges family, and they were caught in the middle of Europe when the war broke out. They were able to scramble back to Switzerland, and the family lived there from 1914 until 1919. Borges, my second question has to do with a certain set of experiences in Geneva. During those years, you acquired, in short succession, in rapid succession, three new languages, none of which you had known before. You learned French, you learned Latin, and then you learned German. Could you tell us briefly what those languages and that experience meant to you during those years? I think that we are deceived by dictionaries. Languages are not sets of synonyms. They are different ways of feeling the world. They are different visions of the world. Every language has in it something peculiar to itself. For example, since I'm speaking in English now, what words could be found in Spanish for eerie, uncanny? I suppose none. Since the, the, the Spaniards stood in no need of those words. 
since they did not feel the presence of evil, that shadowy presence of evil, as the English or the Scots felt it. Well, I would speak of those three languages. Those were three ways, those were no, not two, three, three sets of synonyms, as the dictionary would like us to think, but they were three ways of seeing the world. And the first, of course, was the French language. I had but slight knowledge of French. And then I acquired the French language, and with the French language I acquired that wonderful treasury of the French literature. Of course, if I quote some names, I, people will take me to task for the missions of others. But why leave out, why leave out Montaigne, that lifelong friend? Why leave out Corneille, that hero? Why leave out if the Voltaire, the 18th century, and then Flaubert, then Hugo, of course, who still looms very largely in my world, and Verlaine. Well, I got those things and they have stayed with me. And there was another language I acquired, and that language was Latin. My Latin, as everybody who studies Latin says, is very rusty. <laughs> but still, a rusty Latin is something. I think the oblivion of Latin is in itself a possession. To have forgotten Latin is perhaps more than to have learned other languages. And Latin gave me the sense that things could be said with a few words, that no padding was needed, that every word could be made to stand for something. And after that, why should I not mention Virgil? Virgil. When we speak of Virgil, we think of steel, we think of the Roman Empire, but we also think of the moon, we think of things intimate to us. There is something about Virgil, I've been talking in terms of friendship, and I think of Virgil as a friend, though he may not approve me, he may not be aware of me, but there he is all the time. And then, so the case of German, that was different. I had read Schopenhauer's Welt als Vorstellung, in an English translation. And then I said to myself, perhaps too ambitiously, I said, I will teach myself German. And so I, I acquired somehow a copy of Heine's Buch der Lieder and a German-English dictionary, since English, of all the languages I knew, was the one most akin to the German. And then I began reading, and after let's say, two months. I cannot, I cannot tell the time, since time, of course, is hardly akin to, to delight, to happiness. There came a moment when I could lay the dictionary aside and then go over perhaps the finest verses in the world. I could go over, Das küste mich auf Deutsch, uns Sprach auf Deutsch. Man weiß es kaum, wie gut es klang das Wort, ich liebe dich. Das war ein Traum. And the others, for example, that very fine poem on the battlefield of Hastings, and the poem on Yehuda Halevi by Heine. So I acquired the German tongue, and that has also stayed with me. Remember, the first book I read was, significantly enough, a book called Der Golem. And I think I have, I have written my finest poem, if indeed you may be allowed to speak of a fine poem in connection with myself, I think I've written perhaps my most 
unforgivable poem on, on their golem, the golem. The idea of a man creating another man and looking at him with misgiving, feeling sorry for himself, feeling that after all his work has come to naught. At the same time, God looks on the man and thinks that his work also is incomplete. That is to say, the golem is to the rabbi who creates him, even as the rabbi is to God. Or even as the work of art, I mean, the work of art, the poet, is to the artist, is to the poet, or the poet is to God. It's a cause for misgiving. But still, what can we do for going writing our poems? So, I somehow, I made myself a possessor of those three languages, French, Latin, and German. And afterwards, well, this happened way back in 1955, when I had lost my sight, I thought that that should be not the end of something, not the end of light, but the beginning of something, not the beginning of night, but of something else. And so I turned to the study of stubborn old English. And since 1955, I have been studying that very fine and very stubborn language. I know I shall never learn it. But of course the fact that the quest is aimless is perhaps one of the chief delights in the quest. And I'm getting fine poetry all the time. It might be wiser if I were to, to lay this subject aside because old English is my hobby. I suppose I would bore you to extinction were it to go on with old English. But I have also, I'm also going in for old Norse. Somehow the North has a witchcraft for me. Perhaps the fact that I come of Portuguese, the Spanish stock, but also the fact that my grandmother came from Northumberland to the North Country, that has made me think of the North as of something wonderful. And now I have gone in for a discovery of the past, which is really meant by the study of Old English and of Old Norse. And at the same time, when I was in Geneva, I made another discovery, another friend, that friend is, as you may have been aware of hearing me today, that friend was Walt Whitman. I discovered him firstly in a German translation. Then I said to myself, why read Walt Whitman in German? <laughs> Which of course was nonsensical. And then I got hold, I ordered a copy of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Then, since then, I seem to have been always reading them. I, when I think of Walt Whitman, I do not think, let us say, of his public poems. Those are less important to me than his intimate poems. For example, when he says, these are really the thoughts of old men in old ages and lands. They're not original with me. And then, this is the grass that grows wherever the land is and the water is. This is the common air that bathes the globe. And I have done, as well as I could, Walt Whitman's Song of Myself into Spanish, that has been published two or three years ago. So that you see, for those years, beyond my personal experiences, my experiences of love, of happiness, of unhappiness, and chiefly of friendship, those years were also rich in other gifts. In the gifts, as I have said, of the French tongue, the Latin tongue, of the German tongue, and afterwards, of course, there came the discovery of old English, I also undertook that out of my own free will, and now I'm venturing into Old Norse, and maybe I will be lost there before 
I know anything about it. But after all, what else can I do but go on learning, but go on trying to learn? In 1918, the war ended, and Borges and his family eventually made their way out of Switzerland and into Spain, Seville, Madrid, and in the winters, Palma, de Mallorca. Borges was beginning to write at this period in his life. His first published piece as a young writer, oddly enough, was in French, it appeared in Geneva. He wrote a long review of three new books by Spanish authors, which was published in Le Feuille in Geneva in August of 1919. Books by Baroca, by Azorin, and by a Jesuit priest by the name of Ruiz Amado. In late 1919, Borges and his parents, his mother and father, were walking through Seville and came across a magazine in a kiosk, a magazine called Grecia. Some two months later, Borges' first poem in Spanish was published. Borges soon was associated with a group of young theorists, poets, who belonged to what has been called the ultraist sect. Borges, you have since referred to that sect as arid and as mistaken. But you gave a good many years to it, and you wrote a lot of poetry, which some people have included within that tendency. How do you feel about that sect today, that arid and mistaken sect of altruism? I think now, should we forgiven for it? We made the mistake of thinking, Luones had committed the same mistake before, Luones is a very fine Argentine poet. He committed that mistake in 1908. We evolved the same mistake, let us say, some 15 years afterwards, thinking that the chief element in poetry is a metaphor. I no longer believe that. I know the metaphor is a charming toy. There is something about the metaphor that somehow still keeps on charming me. But I think now that no new metaphors can be begotten. I think that there are a few essential metaphors. Those metaphors stand for real links between things. I will give them briefly thus. Stars and eyes. Time, the river. Living, dreaming. Death, dying. Flowers and women. I wonder if there are really any others than those. For those may be sufficient for our pur purposes. And I think I may convince you of this by giving you two very fine examples. The one of the first metaphor, the, the link, the secret, the everlasting link between stars and eyes. In the Greek anthology may be found, may be found an epigram attributed to Plato. And therein he says, I wish I were the night, and so I could look on you with a thousand eyes. There you have the metaphor of eyes and stars. But in that, that, the poem of Plato, we have 
The stars as a symbol of amorous anxiety. We think of the stars as of the many eyes of a lover looking on, on his mistress and seeing her from many or from endless angles. Now we take the same metaphors, eyes and arms, eyes and eyes. And we have it thus, in a poem called A Second Childhood. By that writer, I always keep, keep it coming back to, G.K. Chesterton. And he, he speaks of the night. He speaks of the night and he says, A cloud that is larger than the world, and a monster made of eyes, not full of eyes, as is the image we get in the world revelation. No, monster made of eyes, which of course has in it a touch of the nightmare. There we see the same metaphor. What in the same, in the first example, in the Greek example, the many eyes stood for anxiety, for love, for tenderness. While in the second, a cloud that is larger than the world, and a monster made of eyes, those many eyes stand for something uncanny. They stand for the night as being a nightmare, for the night as being seen, seen by the first time by Adam and the fear he must have felt when he saw the night. In 1921, the Borges family returned to Buenos Aires after a seven-year absence, and Borges immediately moved into the most prominent literary circles in his homeland and in the capital of Buenos Aires. He wrote three books of poetry in the 1920s, three books of essays, which by the end of the 1920s were to experience a severe fate. All three books of essays were subsequently rejected by Borges and were excluded from his complete works. All three books of poetry were extensively rewritten and some poems were dropped out. It was in a decade then of considerable activity, but with the years going by of rethinking and rejecting. Borges, could you explain what it was about that first decade of your literary career in Argentina that caused you to feel that what you'd written had to be rewritten or downright rejected? I came to literature through trial and error, chiefly error. But my father never spoke to me about what I wrote. His silence, of course, was a judgment. But he let me, he told me, no man can help another. You must make your own mistakes. And I abounded in mistakes, only too foolish. I have published many books I repent of now. I published my first book, Verborde Buenos Aires, a book wherein I was too ambitious, I attempted, let's say, metaphysics, the description of Buenos Aires, of the low houses, of the long streets, the long streets, let's say, sprawling away into the Pampa, and also my personal loves and so on. I intended all that in the first volume of, of I published, Fervorde Buenos Aires. But I had already I had already written and destroyed three volumes. So this was really, that volume was really my fourth. 
Perhaps I should have destroyed that also. But still, I feel that somehow I love it. I feel that somehow everything I wrote afterwards is really to be read, not in that book, or let us say it may be read into that book. It will be read between the lines. Or at least I can glimpse everything I wrote ever afterwards between those lines. And since then I have gone in for many things. And now I am 76 and hope I'm not ambitious when I say that I may have written, for all I know, two or three short stories and two or three poems, and that should be enough for any man. The rest is silence. He went around hunting up in bookshops, buying the copies he could find and burning them. This practice continued until the 1960s. I recall one time going with Borges to a bookshop where he had tracked down a copy of Inquisiciones, and we found out what was being asked for it. He says, this is the end. I can go no farther. The prices were very high because the books were becoming very rare. So, with the three books of poems from the 20s behind him, he wasn't writing poetry anymore. He'd renounced the three books of essays he'd written, and the 1930s turned out to be a difficult period for Borges. He saw the need to find employment, and the jobs he was able to secure were only marginally related to literature. For a while, he ran the Sunday supplement to a Buenos Aires newspaper, which dedicated its time, half of its time, to scandal and the other half to blackmail. Later on, he edited the book review page of a magazine, which might be the counterpart of a magazine in America, which has now disappeared, the Woman's Home Companion. He took a job in a library and had a nine-year-long association with that library, library in Almagro in a dingy part of Buenos Aires, and they were unhappy days. Out of this period in the 1930s, when the image of the two Borges, the Borges who was the writer, the Borges whose name was in biographical dictionaries, the Borges who was publishing in Victorio Campos Sur, and the Borges who had to get up every morning, get on the subway, get on the streetcar, and go to that library and spend a day making believe that he had a job to do there, cataloging some... 40 books. The first day he went on the job, he did 100 and some, and they said, they took him aside and said, 40, 45, maybe 50 sometimes, but don't do 100, you're going to show the rest of us up. We've got a deal. And it was a very small library, and there were 40 public employees in the library. The sadness and the humiliation of those years somehow had something to do with what was going on in his mind. He had never written stories before. There was one isolated story in 1933. Another isolated story, a hoax in 1936, but not until 1938, a critical year for Borges, when his father died in February, and six days later, a man who was a literary idol for him, and at the same time, a nemesis, Leopoldo Logones, committed suicide. And at the end of that year, 1938, Borges himself nearly died from an infection, which he sustained on Christmas Eve. After that, he began to write. 
And we have to believe that in the process of the 1930s, some of the ideas that began to appear in the stories, the first one he wrote after he recovered was Pierre Menard, Autor del Quixote. Pierre Menard, Autor del Quixote. Then he wrote Colonel Parobus Tercius. Then he wrote Las Ruinas Circulares, Circle Wounds. And he was off and running on the stories that would eventually find their way into ficciones and subsequently would be busy writing the stories that would form the Aleph. All of this happened, all of this came out of the 1930s Borges, and I just wondered if you could comment on what that unhappiness might have had to do with what you eventually wrote in Ficciones and the Aleph. I think that in the case of a writer, unhappiness is a tool. Indeed, the universe is a tool. All experiences should be grist to literary man's mill. So that really there are no unhappy experiences. Everything should be used, even humiliation, even the indifference of others, even insomnia. All those things should be felt of as being secret and sometimes awful gifts from an unknown to divinity, from some inconceivable to Godhead who is really helping us along the time, all the time. This may be wrong, but I think we should hold to that faith. If not, we could not, well, if that were not so, we could not afford to write. So really, we should think of all experiences as being useful to us. And among those experiences, I should say, a major one in my life has been blindness. I thought of blindness as being at first something unbearable. Because to be a blind man is to be in prison. To be a blind man is to be in loneliness. To be a blind man is to be in a sense Robinson Crusoe on a secret island. At the same time, when you are blind, time flows down an easy slope. It flows in a different way. And then, since you are not troubled by the universe, since the universe is beyond you, even as your faces are beyond me at this moment, then you may look at that other universe, yourself, and then you may concentrate on your dreams. Or Maybe you just have to sit back and let your thought, and let your thought weave dreams. And those dreams, of course, are the stuff, the stuff that, that poems and tales are made of. So I have tried to think of blindness as being a gift, since to a writer all things should be a gift. Indeed, if we were really poets, but of course you're not, then every moment in our lives would be something to be written down. Every moment should need a commemoration. Every moment should be worthy of an anniversary. Of course that does not happen. We are blunt, we are insensitive to things, and so we may think of some moments as standing out. But really, as opposed to God, all moments stand out. And that is the reason why he permits this, this international world going on. Because I suppose God, if he exists, I do not know where he exists, is enjoying every moment of it. Of course, I am not enjoying every moment of it. At this moment, I feel quite happy 
I feel I'm ringed in by friends. But there are moments, of course, when I feel lonely. The moments, for example, when I feel homesick for Buenos Aires. My, my, the hometown. Or moments when I think that they might have acted better than I have acted. Because my life, my life, as all lives, is full, not only of sorrow, but full of remorse. When I look back on the past, I think I might have acted far better than I have. But at the same time, I know that perhaps I could not have acted otherwise. Perhaps I'm not a free agent. And that is a great consolation. And another consolation is the thought that when I die, I shall die utterly. When I die, the universe shall die with me. I hope to be utterly forgotten when I am dead. In fact, I may be forgotten already for all I know. <laughs> Thank you, Borges. Now, Borges would like to have your questions. Yes, right here. The question was, what is your reaction to two words, imagination and ego? Well, I suppose that imagination may be thought of as a synonym of the world, since all things are a dream. As to eagle, I do not know. I think, of course, of the many eagles in literature, but of course I am hampered by works. I cannot really think of eagles. I think of eagles in poems. I do not think of real eagles, since for all I know I have never seen them. Well, I suppose I should apologize to you. Because the world is ego. And I wonder if the ego exists. I wrote a paper in a forgotten volume called Inquisiciones called La Naderia del Yo, The Nothingness of the Eye. And maybe I was right. I wonder whether there is an ego. I remember Hume said, when I look for myself, I find it's the nobody at home. And, in my case, I always find some imagination, some whim, some memory, but not that mysterious myself, the ego, the I. Though I do not know whether the ego exists or not. It may be a mere hypothesis, all I know. Question over here. Quiere que conteste en español, por ¿Qué es el Aleph? El Aleph es un breve círculo imaginario que yo, bueno, este descubrí o soñé que descubría en un sótano de la calle Garay, en Buenos Aires. Ahora, el Aleph fue engendrado así. Yo empecé 
por el pensamiento de la eternidad, el concepto de que para los teólogos todo el tiempo, todos los ayeres, hola, buenos días, todo el presente y todos los mañanas están cifrados en un solo instante, an everlasting now, podríamos decir. Yo pensé en llevar esa categoría, que es la eternidad naturalmente, a algo más modesto, al, al espacio, y pensar en todos los puntos del espacio concentrados en un solo punto. Y así, y así este, concebí, así imaginé esa especie de eternidad espacial, no temporal, que llamé el Alef. Y después tuve que inventar las circunstancias del cuento, naturalmente, como el Alef es maravilloso, las circunstancias tenían que ser triviales, circunstanciales, y luego, además, ahí, de algún modo, envolví la historia de una mujer a quien yo quería y que no me había querido, y además le escribió un amigo mío, me escribí yo mismo, y hice una especie de este poema cuando describo el universo, ese objeto que nadie ha visto y que posiblemente no existe. Another question. I'll rephrase the question, and for the sake of everybody here, we'll answer in English. Will that be all right? The question was as follows. No one, no one has recognized, the question was as follows. No one has recognized the influence of other writers on Borges. The example was given of Vicente Huidobro, who was a Chilean. Also, people have acknowledged Borges' influence as a literary entity on other people, Latin American writers, but no one takes into account the lack of influence of Borges on these people in the area of political action, activity. La contestación es muy simple. No soy un político, soy un escritor. En cuanto a mí, actividad política, en cuanto a mi actitud política, nunca le he ocultado. 
Yo fui enemigo de la dictadura en mi país. Esto lo supo, esto lo supieron todos. Y la prueba es que después de la revolución, de la que no me arrepiento y que venero, la revolución de 1955, fui nombrado director de la Biblioteca Nacional por el gobierno de la Revolución Libertadora. Ahora, yo no he ocultado nunca mi política, mi actitud política, mis convicciones. Todo el mundo sabe que no soy antisemita, que no soy comunista, que no soy nacionalista, que desde luego no he sido nunca partidario de la dictadura y que sigo siendo enemigo del partido de esa dictadura ahora que ese partido está en el gobierno. Pero al mismo tiempo he pensado que mis convicciones políticas no tienen por qué interferir en mi obra poética. De modo que he tratado de que no intervengan. He tratado de mantener mi obra poética, que incluye desde luego la prosa también, he tratado de mantenerla libre de mis opiniones personales, pero no he ocultado mis opiniones. Esas opiniones no han influido en nadie porque no tienen por qué influir. Porque, lo repito, soy un escritor. No, no estoy huyendo de la literatura y escondiéndome en la política. Soy un escritor, un poeta. A question right here. Why do you call Old English a stubborn language and do you have a favorite poem written in Old English? I call Old English a stubborn language because I've been trying to learn it unsuccessfully for the last 15 years. <laughs> At the same time, there are so many favorite poems I can hardly fix on one. But perhaps my favorite would be a poem called The Grave. That poem has been done into English by a long fellow. But since I cannot recall it, I might think of the Battle of Moldo. That poem wherein we find the, all the circumstantial details that were rediscovered centuries afterwards by the Norsemen who wrote the sagas. But why should I not speak? Why should I not speak of the, of the dream of the road, of the, of the, of the wanderer? of the seafarer, and why should I not give you, since I threaten you with some pieces in Old English, why should I not give you the first lines of the fragment of Innsburg? Ornas, Björnath, Nevere, the author of the Ache Atho Young Kuning, ne visne daia theastan, ne herdraka ne floyer, ne visne eale hornas ne Björnath, ak ferfort vera, huyen asingar. Now, if you do not feel the ring of those lines, if you do not feel the bravery in those lines, then I suppose that poem is unworthy of you, or rather you're unworthy of that poem. Over here, a question. Has your admiration for Scandinavian literatures in any way influenced your own writing? I sincerely hope it has. I should be worthy of those books. Besides, I feel 
the north, the Scandinavian north, so deeply that it is hardly not controlled what I write. I thank you, sir, for what you say. Question over here. The question is, why have you destroyed so many of your works? The answer is, because those works are rubbish. A question right here. He was not in, well, he may have visited Zurich. He spent most of the time in Geneva. While you were in Zurich, did you visit, ever visit the Café Voltaire? Café Voltaire. I do not think I have, but I cannot be expected to remember those things for so many years. You see, I was in Switzerland from 1915 to 1919 or 1920. And of course, many cafes have been visited and forgotten by me. Is that a question in the back? Yes. I think those books might be el otro el mismo in verse, and then in prose, perhaps. Lalif and the Dr. Brody's report. What you can, you can leave them out also. Question on the aisle. What is the function of a critic of other works, of other authors' works? The function of a critic is to be forgiving. The function of a critic is to do what my critics have done, to rewrite and redream everything you have done. Question here, yes. What can you say about your own creative process? I think of it as a rather passive process. I mean, I may be walking down the street and I suddenly feel that something is about to happen. And then I glimpse something. Let us say I glimpse the end of a story. Or I may glimpse the beginning of a story. But generally both of them at the same time. And then I try to find out what happens in between. And that, of course, is only revealed to me through patient work. I have to go in for writing, I have to imagine the setting, I have to find the characters and so on. And then if I am lucky, I may write a story or a poem. But at first, the thing is given me. I'm generally given the end of a story, the end of a poem. And I have to work up to it. I try to interfere the, the least I can. I try to interfere very little with my own work. But it goes on, and of course I try to reject it now and then, but sometimes... The dream, let us say, the vision, 
past its will with me. And then I sit patiently down, I write it in order to be rid of it, finally to publish it and to forget it. We can take about two more questions, please. Back here on the aisle. Yes. Do you feel any kinship with an author with whom your works have been associated, Vladimir Nabokov? In order to feel that kinship, I should have to have read him. And since I haven't, it's very difficult for me. Well, I... One last question over here on the side. Yes. Yes, right here. You have used many philosophical ideas throughout your work. What is reality for you? What kind of reality is literature for you? Suppose literature is real as all things are. I do not see how anything can be unreal. Since we call reality, let's say, the whole of our experiences, so that a dream is no less real than physical pain or physical pleasure. As to philosophy, I have spent much time in reading philosophical books. Those books seem to be always the same. I have been reading and rereading, you could say, Barclay, Hume, Schopenhauer, Mautner, Bradley, William James, and also that in another field, it is Edinburgh. Those books have been my reading. I think rereading is far more important than reading, because when you reread a book, then you go deeper down into it. But if you read, you read nothing at all. You're reading really the surfaces of books. I think that should be the last question. Thank you very much and good night. You have been listening to The Circular Ruins, an evening with Jorge Luis Borges, recorded in Los Angeles, May 1976, at the University of California. You've been listening to Magra Radio, a broadcast project of Magra Books, streaming worldwide for your listening pleasure, bringing you news that stays news. Magra Radio is produced in Los Angeles by Sean Pesson and Paul Vangelisti. We'd like to thank the Pacifica Radio Archive for their generous support in making this broadcast possible. An audio copy of this program is available at www.pacificaradioarchives.org.